Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor of Football 365 and Andy Dillon of The Sun. We live in strange times. So-called England fans boo an England player out of stupidity and ignorance. A top manager takes a team to the Champions League final. He wants to rebuild, but rumours circulate that he's on the verge of the sack. I'm talking about Joe Gomez and Mauricio Pochettino, of course. But let's start with Spurs. It's your specialist subject, Seb. (laughs) What on earth's going on? Uh, well, I think you covered it, Mike. I mean, um, they're, they're caught between a, a rebuild. And they're also, punch has been poisoned a little bit by some fairly wayward attitudes and lack of commitment. I mean, obviously, Spurs have to plan for the next three or four years, build a new side. Very difficult to do that when you're including four or five players who don't really want to be part of that. It's, uh, it's, it's making it more painful than it needs to be at the moment. Mm. You've got Danny Rose uh, going out, Andy, and saying... Well, I'll just run the contract down. You've got three or four others in the same situation. In a way, is Daniel Levy reaping what he sowed? I, I think, just from what Seb was saying there, the contrast is incredible with Spurs. Go back a few years when they were nailing down player after player mm. after player and there was this, what looked like this really exciting long-term project uh, and all of us who support other teams just had to stand back and but grudgingly admire just what they were doing, how, you know, they weren't, winning trophy after trophy, but they still had this, they somehow had this magic ingredient, this commitment. I think what they are reaping is they've not, they kind of they seem to have moved on, they've got the stadium, but they, they haven't moved on to that trophy. That's the big thing. And it's all very well, you can be loyal up to a point, but they're all watching the clock, all these players, and they're thinking, you know, I've got to, I've got to make a decision here. And there's too many of them kind of, flapping in the wind, you know, contracts running down. And comes from the top with Pochettino as well about his future. So there's a, there's a sense of listlessness at the top and there's no kind of surety in Spurs. As, you know, as much as the stadium looks magnificent, I think, that, I think this is the problem. There's too many characters that are ready to go. I mean, Harry Kane is trying to hold it all together with his incredible loyalty, but too many others are kind of ready to up sticks. How do you see it all panning out, Seb? I think let's go to January. I know Pochettino has said in the past that he doesn't see anything happening in January, but the imperative is that they need a pair of new fullbacks at least. I think um, 
I'm not sure whether Danny Rose can play any further part. I'm not, I don't, as a Tottenham fan, I'm not wildly keen on seeing him play the side again. But it's not just him, is it? You've it's not just him. Ericsson, Vertonghen, Alderweireld. I think what's antagonistic, Mike, is, is you're right, it's not just him, but then this is not the first time Danny Rose has spoken publicly about this. It's very confusing because on the one hand, he talks about his, the, 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 the great debt he owes Pochettino and the great faith Pochettino has shown in him and how much he appreciates that. And then he repays him by publicising the club's issues in the national press. Bit of a contradiction. I, I don't understand that as a, as, a, as a supporter. On a human level, I understand his frustrations. We are aware of how Daniel Levy does business. And that would be quite difficult to, uh, difficult to deal with as, a, as, an, as an employee of the club. But they need a completely new side. They, they still have these dependencies on players who, as Andy covered, they can't rely on. If Christian Eriksen wants to embrace this new challenge and add in Alderweireld Vertonghen into that equation, then how can you go through the kind of the birthing process that any new team must suffer with players that know that in a year's time, two years, they're not going to be there? It just You have to have new people there. And at the moment, the short-term answer is you have to kind of weaken your side. Now, if that means playing a, a Kyle Walker-Peters at right-back, because Serge Aurier also wants to go, if that means using Ryan Cessnion at left-back, then that has to be the way of it. And the same is true of Ericsson. You must, I don't know, put in oh, a Juan Foyth instead of a Toby Alderweireld. You're going to become vulnerable as a result of that, but it is at least a step in the right direction, a step away from all the... I don't even know how to characterise it. Maybe the, 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 the ennui that seems to, seems to have gripped on them. Mm. I'd just like to say, as a dyed-in-the-wall sunman, I'd like to send a message to all footballers out there. Please don't be afraid to wash your club's dirty linen in the <laughs> national press. It's to be admired, it's to be encouraged. Oh, no. <laughs> you, you, know, you, know, you know what it is. I, We're here for you. <laughs> on this, with the Danny Rose thing, it, it, it's conflicting because on the one hand, I've got an enormous amount of time for Danny Rose. I think he speaks brilliantly on some really important he's subjects. A, he's a good guy, actually. He's, he, he comes across as a good guy. He's eloquent and erudite, and he, he speaks about things a lot of footballers are, will not do. So mental health, racism, these things need to be in the, in, in the public domain. They need to, to have a, a powerful voice behind them. At the same time, what are you doing? Like, what, 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 what do you think the, the end result of these, uh, of these revelations are? Why, why, two years ago, Danny Rose sort of couldn't wait to sort of get out from underneath his contract. And it was, it was insulting to him, apparently. And it was, it was, it was very difficult for him to... To, to achieve anything whilst you know, he wasn't receiving a wage commensurate with what he thought his ability was. And now he's clinging to that contract for the next 18 months. Mm. I'm not accusing him of anything, I just don't understand it. It's such a, an open contradiction. Yeah, you, you quite rightly, Andy, mentioned Harry Kane and mm. the loyalty factor, yeah, which is it's, huge. it's incredible. How long can that be sustained? That depends on what sort of a character Harry Kane is because what he values as a person you know, the, when I talk to the people who are you know, really, really closely involved with Harry Kane and, and at Spurs, he really only wants to play for Spurs. And he's, always, he's willing them to win something. And he, you know, he hasn't forgotten the way they picked him up after Arsenal rejected him, which is unusual for a footballer. But it's a selfish, selfish industry. He's a very selfless guy. I can't tell you exactly how long. I can't say he's going to you know, give up next Wednesday or you know, in, a, in a year's time or two years' time, but there surely must come to a point when he is going to have to think, right, I've given you long enough. I need, I need to look back on my career eventually and say, I won this or I, I won that. Because money's not an issue, is it? He's going to be a very wealthy man, stay or go. 
So that's the point. That's that's the, the pinch point, isn't it, for for Harry Kane? And I think one of the other important incidents or episodes was Trippier leaving, wasn't it? Just suddenly gone. And then I think he came out afterwards, and I think he was saying he felt unwanted at Spurs. And to him suddenly just go, turn up at Atletico Madrid and then just come out of all that stuff. And this relates to Danny Rose. You know, we can all criticise footballers and say, why are they doing talking about the team? And it's quite, you know, it's not going to help the team. If he's not feeling he's getting anything back from Spurs, then he's going to be frustrated to a point that he wants to come out and talk about that. Because all the fans see every week is a guy who puts on the white shirt who should give his everything. They don't really see what goes on day-to-day at the training ground or how, how players actually do get treated. So, you know, I know I sound like a cynical red-top reporter, but sometimes, it, you know, and it's great that they come out and talk about these things because then the fans at least know what the flip side is. Mm. I, I sound a bit like the sort of standard football manager here, Seb, but can we accentuate any positives which are there? Let's think about... Positive. <laughs> what about Winks? Now, you know, he... Yeah. He played further forward for, for England. Yes. Were there lessons in that for Tottenham? I, I think so. I really enjoyed his performance <coughs> for England. I like him in that, in that number eight role because, first of all, because he, he's not a holding midfielder. He doesn't have the defensive abilities to do that job. And also, one of Winks' great strengths is his passing range, his ambition with the ball. And when you play him as the deepest man in the midfield, sometimes that's going to cause problems because he's going to give the ball away. He's going to expose you to a little bit of risk. I thought him in that sort of in-between role, that kind of shuttling position. He looked great. He's got such a, a broad set of abilities. And you see, I thought, okay, Kosovo, I felt maybe sort of uh, dialed down their performance after about an hour. So it's a little bit of a false context. But he was great. You, you saw the sort of the rainbow of, of what Harry Winks can do. And I I don't know, he's not even in the Tottenham team at the moment. He's, he's sort of paid the cost for, you know, the sort of the, the Bayern Munich mm. Few weeks, which we won't talk about, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. But he, um, yeah, I, I think there's there's something in that. There's, there was certainly something instructive in his in his time with England. This time okay. around. I want to share the pain, Andy. <laughs> so, you know, with your West Ham connections, mm. obviously the BT Sport game mm. on Saturday, mm. very loose talk about Pochettino getting sacked if Spurs lose to West Ham. Let's turn it on its head. And Pellegrini, mm. he's struggling big time, isn't he? Yeah. It's it's amazing, even after all my years in the newspaper industry, just how quick the stories start to surface. You know, you lose a few games and then, well, it's because of this, it's because of that. Pellegrini has been dealt a savage blow, really, with the loss of Fabianski. We can't deny that. But the the ripple effect, the lack of confidence, the loss of confidence from defence, through the defence, without Fabianski there, has been quite quite something even even for people experienced West Ham watchers like me who've seen seen them tumble like decks of cards houses of cards I think there's there, you know there are theories that Pellegrini after a certain amount of years tends to lose interest and you know his effect on the players diminishes I find that a bit hard to believe that it's happened all of a sudden after beating Manchester United 2-0 in a fantastic victory for them and then the very next game is when Fabianski goes off injured with a hip problem, then it all starts to happen. I find it hard to imagine that it's all down to that thing. I know that there are quite a few, not big, but minor dissensions in the ranks that some of the defensive players feel West Ham have got a very exciting forward line, but some of those forwards don't really fancy tracking back and doing the, the dirty stuff at the back and defending. And all this, of course, then makes Pellegrini's job harder because he's then got to try and persuade them and get them to do that and start playing as a unit again. 
So Pellegrini, I don't think he's under any immediate threat of the sack, but it's really interesting how very quickly the questions above start from above start being asked by the people that are paying the bills. That few, you know, this is the modern game. Four, five, six games without a win, and suddenly it's right. Well, he needs to start doing this. Those blokes no good, and that sort of thing. It's amazing how quickly it all starts to turn around. I don't think you'll get the the bullet soon. West Ham aren't that sort of a club even these days. But there's just a kind of a shock has gone through the whole team. Declan Rice has gone off the boil. He looks like a shell of the player he was at the moment, doesn't he? Uh, I think I think that's understandable. He's a young kid and he the acceleration he had at West Ham was going to be pretty impossible to maintain. So you've got to cut him some slack. But players like Felipe Anderson, they need to start turning up more. Lanzini is obviously injured now. He too could have done with a few more shifts. They need players like Snodgrass. And the good news for them is that I think Mikel Antonio is fit. Whether or not he starts, I don't know. But any West Ham will tell you that he's now a legend at the club for scoring the goal that beat Tottenham at their new stadium for the first time. So he's <laughs> he's he's got character. He's, as well as physical strength, speed, and an eye for a great goal, he's got a certain... You know bullishness about him that with Mark Noble and with Declan Rice, they can they can and Snodgrass they can combine and that could maybe inject a bit more steel back into them because they've just folded absolutely folded. Rice said they got bullied at Burnley. A great phrase from a young kid. He was absolutely right. Mm. I say Rice is going through his growing pains both at club and and national level. Yeah. With the England debate, can we look at almost the England dividend? you know, the spillover effect from an international break. Let's look specifically at Liverpool. I'm guessing that Joe Gomez is a very lucky boy because he's got someone of the natural empathy of Jurgen Klopp to put an arm around him and say, look, come back. And was it good management by Gareth Southgate to say, you don't need to go to Kosovo. And okay, you've got this knee injury, but go back and get your head together. I'm a little bit torn. I mean, uh, had that been another home game, I think I'd have quite liked to see him stay with England and then go out in front of the crowd and for the crowd to have paused for thought before seeing him again because that was a disgrace. That was just... A, it's just a, a terrible way to treat an England player who has done absolutely nothing wrong. Yes, I think it is smart for him because I, when you actually think about what that experience must be like for Joe Gomez, I remember reading a, um, an article, I forget where it was, but his family were in the crowd too. Mm. And um, if that was my son, that would be quite damaging. You couldn't really pick two better managers for him to operate between. Gareth Southgate, of course, understands what it's like to suffer with a national team. But Jürgen Klopp, there's no one better at, at sort of restoring a player's morale. So yeah, just get him out of the situation, give the opportunity for, create the opportunity for something else to happen, a new story, everyone to forget about it. And for, for Joe Gomez to just be back playing for a side that were are probably going to win the Premier League. That's that's the way out of this, I'm afraid. Mm. Do you, you look at um, Liverpool, and you know we, we've spoken on this program, you know, very recently about almost the inevitability of them winning the title. They're at mm. Palace at the weekend. Mm. <coughs> there is a remorselessness about them, isn't there? But also, there's this sense that you've got players bonding at the right time. Unless, of course, you're Sadio Mane, um, who's not exactly bonding with Mo Salah up front, has he, in recent weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 
the, the message that was sent with the win over Manchester City was just, yeah. it wasn't even 1-0, it was a proper, proper thumping. And for all Pep Guardiola's arguing and sarcasm, that's just trying to cover his tracks, isn't it? Trying to cover up the real story. It's an amazing team being built. I, with no great sort of scientific knowledge, I just tipped them to win the title this year because they went so close last year. And that experience, that experience of finishing so close but missing out, has been it's been like rocket fuel, I think, mm. so far this season. It's almost it, that's what people used to say about Tottenham that they were getting closer and closer and closer. And if they'd managed that, you know, and if you can bottle it like Jurgen Klopp seems to be able to do and channel it back into the team for this season, it can really it can push you on that extra extra yard or two. I would have to say I disagree on the Joe Gomez incident. I think I would have played him because. I still can't work out why he was booed. I don't think anybody can really work out why. I don't think Wembley was particularly populated by Manchester City fans who had a grudge. I honestly think just two or three idiots have just started to boo and people have just joined in not thinking. And a game three days later, four days later, would have been a perfect opportunity for the fans to admit that and to give him a, a, a decent reception as he came on and realise somebody's just slipped up here and there's, you know, we don't really know what happened, but look, here's our chance to, to try and heal the wounds. I thought it was very interesting in that, in, in that whole sort of, let's call it scratch gate, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> yeah. the role that Jordan Henderson played. Mm. He's coming across to me as, as one of the best leaders, naturally, in the Premier League. Do you agree with that, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's his, it's his best attribute. I don't think Jordan Henderson's a particularly good player. I think he's, a, he's fine. He's a, he's a 7 out of 10 man. But I think what makes him special and what gives him that place is his role as a captain and the kind of the, the way other players react to him. I think what's interesting is there was, a, there was an interview with him a few days ago where he was talking about when Luis Suarez was first at the club and he was still very much a kind of on the periphery at, at Liverpool and they were in training and he, he overhit a pass or something and Suarez pouted, like bit out his hands and sort of, you know, what am I doing playing with this guy who shouldn't be in the same team as me? And Henderson went for him, which... Not great for your dressing room dynamic at the time, but actually that describes something quite likable about a player that's, that's sort of... You can imagine other players gravitating towards that and finding that quite magnetic. And I, yeah, I, I, and everything you hear from him, he seems like a very decent human being, very, very likable person. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly um, you wouldn't... No, no one would complain about having them as their captain if, you were, if he was at your club, so... Seven out of ten players generally give you 7 out of 10 every week as well. Exactly that. The 10 out of 10s will give that. you a 1 out of 10 the following week. Yeah. I know this as a regular 2 out of 10 player hey, myself. <laughs> At least I had consistency on my side. That's the Felipe Anderson <laughs> point though, isn't it? Mm. Sort of the, yeah. the, the feast or famine player who yeah. you think yeah. you're going to be great once a month. Yeah. I'd much rather have the Henson type that gives me that steady baseline than someone that just winds you up over six months. Because that, That's why he's a good know. leader because he yeah. you can put him at the heart and he, you, know, you know what you'll get from him. You know that it's honesty, and, yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when you got, you know, if you're talking about a regular, consistent player, Trent Alexander-Arnold fits that bill perfectly. It is interesting as you see him develop. You look at him and maybe still worry about him defensively. Does that? Do you see him actually moving up through, you know, a, a further forward in the pitch and playing a wider, more attacking role? Every every reason to expect that, yeah. His set pieces, particularly his free kicks, are spectacular, aren't they? I saw him just smash one in at Chelsea. 
It's one of those, it's kind of like a similar situation at Chelsea with Alonso and Emerson Palmieri. Alonso's not considered the best defensive left back and as a result doesn't get in the team so much. I think it depends on who your manager is, how much emphasis they place on, on the defensive aspects of your game. If you've got to win a title, then I think, you know, it's pretty key to keep the clean sheets. So, yeah, I think, you know, Gareth Bale was, I remember talking to Harry Redknapp years ago, thinking he would be a great left back as well. But... Yeah, I mean, he's versatile. He's, he's got speed as well. I, I think he's all along that right side. Is, um, it could be his territory, no problem whatsoever. Mm. Very exciting player. Mm. Very exciting. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, you know, there was a moment of you know, you, an inhalation when oh, goodness, he, yes. you know, he, yeah. he had that not very early in the game against Kosovo yeah. because of what he's been through. To me, it seems that there's a player rediscovering himself again and maybe the club rediscovering what they've got. I think so. I think actually one of the sort of the minor stories of the season has been his re-emergence at, at Liverpool. The goal he scored out in Genk was just uh, was absolutely beautiful. I wonder, I mean, I, I, I quite like the theory of the role he played for England. That sort of, it's not quite a number 10, but it's the sort of the, the most advanced part of the midfield. It's a sort of, you know, vertical, fluid position. I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not sure he's quite good enough technically so you, you see his ambition and you see his drive his willingness to pick the ball up but he's he's just not quite accurate enough so when you put a player like um for instance uh, a mason mount type in that they there's, there's a slightly more metronomic quality to the distribution which i don't think oxley chamberlain has wonderful to see him back fantastic that he didn't get um he wasn't sort of back on the treatment table as a result of the cost of the pitch because that would have been a story for a couple of days at least yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I like having him in the squad. I'm not sure there's there's a future England number 10 there. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with that point. But I also think the, with the, the horrific injuries that he's had, oh, yeah. it's no wonder he hasn't got a metronomic. That's because a metronomic kind of player is a bloke who's playing week in, week out, month in, month out, and knows what's coming and is and he's sure of his body because he knows. I mean, Mason Mount yeah. has... Recovered from incredible. He's had, you know, he's he's limped off the pitch. He's been twice this season, but he's been back the following week. He's he's been lucky in that respect. Do you think he's ever been that player? I mean, also Chamberlain specifically, Andy. It's hard to tell because he's not had that. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's probably. Yeah, it was. I was reading um, a good colleague of mine, um, Sam Wallace, in the Telegraph. So he's been an England player longer than Danny Rose and Harry Kane. I think he's. But he's still only got 35, I think, 35 caps. And so we, we, a long time ago, he tells that, you everything. That goal in, in Brazil. Do you remember that? That seems like a, a decade ago mm. now mm. in American R. Yeah. You're close to Chelsea, Andy. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a club reaping the, the England benefit. When Tomori came on in Kosovo, that meant that nine of the last 21 England debutants were products of the Chelsea Academy, mm. which is an amazing stat when you yeah. think about it. Is Gareth Southgate plugging into the positivity that Frank Lampard has created there? He is. I think it's, if you look at it on the flip side, I sometimes look at it and think, wow, Tomori has been called up to an England squad. I think he'd played four or five Premier League games for Chelsea. I thought, well, that's, that's premature. I mean, if he's looking long-term, it's very, very long-term because Frank is the first one to admit that Tomori is not finished, not the finished after <coughs> You know, and I saw him play at Southampton when he made a couple of big rickets. So you kind of worry a little bit about the standard that it takes to get into an England team now. You know, when I was growing up in the, the 70s, late 70s, I'll add. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, there was a tiny knot of players got in and it was the same team and you had to be, you had to be one of the best to get in there, not a, pro, a prospect that was coming through. Um, it's obviously a completely different game now. Frank has just been amazing. Frank can't seem to put a, a foot wrong as manager of Chelsea at the moment. And interestingly, talking to Mason Mount not so long ago, he said that in the summer, Frank told them what he wanted from them, but they also said what they wanted from him, which I thought coming out of the mouth of this kid, that's incredible to hear that. He was saying, we told him we had belief in ourselves. All of us have come through and they've all been mates together. So you've got a ready-made unit, you know, with Abraham, hudson Adoy, Mount, Tamori. He said, we told Frank, give us a go and well, we believe in ourselves. We can do it for you. We can do it. We, we expect to be up at the top of the table because that's what Frank calls the non-negotiables. You've got to be up there at least challenging for Champions League and, and you know, keeping the, the status of the club where, where it is. So for a, someone so raw to say that, I just thought that was, that's a rich vein that Southgate could tap into because these kids will do anything for Frank Lampard at the moment and therefore they'll do anything for England because one, the, you know, the latter follows from the former. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you, you're almost seeing sort of overlapping with history. You know, Mount was the youngest scorer since Jimmy Greaves, I think, um, on, uh, on Sunday evening. But in that context, you have to take your chance. Did Callum Hudson-Odoi take his chance in Kosovo? No, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, uh, the difficulty for him is that he's, he's playing in an area of the pitch where it's becoming really competitive. With Pulisic, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, also sort of for England, you've got Rashford and Sancho and Sterling. It's, it's hard to get into that little unit. Also, Gareth Southgate sees Jack Grealish playing in that position, which no, I don't really agree with, but he sees what he sees. It feels like Hudson Odoi, when he came back from his long-term injury, he came back as if he'd never been away, but now he's had a little bit of a lull um, where... Not sure. It might just be a, a, a fitness-related uh, trough. I'm, I'm not sure, but he was. Um, he did some nice things. I think we should be. We should be sort of. We should be careful in, in applying any kind of judgment to, to the Kosovan game because it was. It was a dead rubber for England. It was played in a very strange pitch. Well, it looked a strange pitch. One of those with with a, a pretty loose top surface. I saw sort of Oxlade Chamberlain have that issue right at the beginning. Um, Nick Pope slipping towards the end. He had some nice moments. I mean, I. I there is a hell of a player in there. And not just a dynamic winger, a playmaker, someone with the abilities of a number ten, someone who sees passes, you know. And, and so this is this is someone who, in five years, could be among the very best players in the world. But it's just settled back down again now. So we'll um, we'll see. We'll see. Hudson Odoi prefers the number ten. Role. He looks like one, doesn't that's he? That's what Andy? he wants. Yeah. That's his preferred yeah. role, rather than being out wide. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because but that's not how you associate that position. No, anymore. no. It's just you, you see left winger all the time. It's but... like athlete now, isn't it? Whereas he looks like he, he's so thoughtful in possession. It's um, it's lovely to see an English, English player play like that. Actually, mm. he's um, it's just a bit unfortunate. Sorry, with Pulisic just yeah. hitting form after that last international break when he was in tears for the USA when he got substituted, yeah. to then come back and he's just kind of thought, right, this is it, I'm making my mark now. And yeah, yeah. So hudson Adoy doesn't start as much as he maybe should or would definitely as much as he would want to. One of the things Chelsea are trying to do is sort out a, a new contract for Willian. Mm. We look at and concentrate on the, on the young players, but you do need that experience that he represents. How important is it that they get that deal done? Uh, well, it's funny enough, after the, the most recent game, I said this was my point to Frank, with Frank Lampard in the press conference was... I take it as red, you know, I know you can't tell us what the progress is, but how much do you want him to stay? And he said, well, 
the fact that, you know, the way I'm talking about him now, that he's so experienced, running his legs off for the team. He said, I think that tells you everything you need to know. I look at Willian, I think he's the most un-Brazilian, I said to Frank at the time, he's the most un-Brazilian Brazilian I've ever seen because he just goes, the whistle goes to start and he's just herring all over the place. I grew up watching Brazilians strolling around, smoking a cigarette and having a beer <laughs> and, still, you know, <laughs> and still winning 4-0. Um, but, you know, he's... It's just incredible, and he and he really wants to stay as well because there was the speculation with Barcelona not long ago, and he came out and said, "I don't want to go to Barcelona. I want to stay here. I, I would love to know what the holdup is, and believe me, I'm trying to find out what the holdup is. Um, and if William's watching and wants to come and talk to me, much like Danny Rose, he's more than welcome to. Danny Rose is watching. You not talk to him. But uh, yeah, there's a guy. You know, he's 31, 32, but he's not slowing down. And and those young kids look to him. Because they can give him the ball, and before you know it, he's 50 yards further down the touchline, and, and he's got the tricks to go with it. Yeah. Chelsea are at Manchester City at the weekend. Could they cause some damage there? Could do, could do. I think we've seen that there are some, uh, there's some vulnerability in that City defence. I Just to pick up on something that, that Andy mentioned earlier, I, I expect Tomori to play um, up at the Etihad. I wonder if he's ready for that. I think there's a really good player in there. I just think that sort of at the moment that Chelsea defence is still a work in progress and there are certain places you don't want to go in the Premier League when your defence is like that and obviously Manchester City is one of them. So I, I think I think what, what, what Fran Lampard will look for is is something competitive. It's not a this is not the season for, for Chelsea to be do or dying up at the Etihad. It's a it's a chance to go and um I don't it's almost a reference point for some of those young players. Someone like Mason Mount, for instance, go and play against, you know, in and around the sort of Fernandinho type. Go and feel what it is to be part of that kind of game because those kind of matches are a staple of Chelsea life. If you're going to be a Chelsea player long term, you haven't just got to be able to go and compete in those games. You've got to go and win them because that's what Chelsea teams have done in the past. And this is, this is part of that process. Go and experience it. Go and see how they perform. It's fascinating. I don't think Chelsea win the game, but it is still very, very interesting. That's what I, th- I think Frank will probably play him. Mate, one of the big factors is that Rudiger is not fit. He's recent, just had surgery a week or so ago, not quite fit. But one key thing that struck me about Frank Lampard this season, during that incredible Ajax game at 4-1 down when Kurt Zuma decided to go on his crazy run, <laughs> two step overs and then put it across over the roof. Frank turns around to Jody Morris, they're 4-1 down in his group and he's laughing. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, there's a guy who's finally, someone's enjoying it. No matter what, he's 4-1 down at home, but he's enjoying it. And I think that will, you know, it, it, it creeps into the, the rest of the squad that they're there to enjoy it. And they say, well, you're young, so what? Go and enjoy it and show us yeah. what you can do. Because it's the, it's the parallel opposite with Pep, isn't it? You know, mm. we all know international breaks, rumours fill the void, don't they? But, you know, these suggestions that he's, that he's not happy. Well, he never looks happy. No. No, it's, I think, you know, the, the fun will go out of Frank. Don't get, get me wrong, after a few years as a manager, he will, yeah. He's feeling the pressure. It's, it's good to see Guardiola, you know, feeling the pressure, isn't it? And reacting like he did at Anfield. It's quite good to see them getting squeezed because, you know, you, you watch them. My son, who's 12, calls them the, kind of like the, the, the FIFA 11, aren't they? It's like watching everybody calls them that. And to see them have some real uh, real pressure applied. It'd be quite nice to, that documentary they made behind the scenes, it'd be quite nice if there was one being made this year. Mm. Now they're, they're not cruising every week and just to see how the personality really holds up. 
Oh, they make one about Spurs, so I reckon that might be quite a good watch. <laughs> would, that be, would that be tragedy or comedy? Oh, I will not watch a single minute of that. <laughs> they're, they're the best ones. Everybody likes to see expensively, you know, highly paid, sorry, footballers and managers under pressure. Yeah. Don't want to see them laughing and joking, do you? No. But also, the great thing about football, it, it basically, it does give us these stardust moments, doesn't it? Or stardust stories. Jaden Sancho's a really good example of that, where when he comes back, which I think is probably when rather than if now, given the fact that you know, Dortmund are pulling him off halfway or, or in the first half of, of the buying game. Um, do you think he'll come back to Manchester United and he will come back for a megaton of money, won't he? The second point is absolute certainty. The, the scale of the talent means that that's going to be somewhere between like 150 and 200 million pounds. That's a huge amount of money. Manchester United, it feels like I... It almost feels like a waste of his ability at the moment. Maybe you know, Manchester United is, is, have, have such great resources that they're capable of kind of um, performing almost a quantum leap in the game um, and being very competitive again very soon. At the same time, it feels like almost strange as it is to say, Jaden Sancho is above their station in the game for the sake of forming this player who I know has had issues at Dortmund, but this is still, in every sense, a child, really. Someone that's learning about life as well as the game. I think the better experience from England's perspective is to have Jaden Sancho playing in the Champions League, uh, competing for trophies, competing for silverware. I, I would be careful with what I say. I don't, I don't think that has just joined Manchester United for the money, but that's quite a confused situation to be walking into. Is it helpful for him to, to go into the kind of politics and the kind of flux that Manchester United represent at the moment? Probably not. Um, I'd far rather see him... Um, I'd far rather actually see him stay at Dortmund a little bit longer because it seems like and another player this applies to is Haaland mm. the Salzburg player it's like we're in such a rush to put these players right at the top of the game where the pressure is absolutely at its utmost mm. what is the harm in delaying that until they're 23 or 24 years old but the problem with that is well and you know God, only Gunnar Solskjaer has already sent his personal scout mm. to see Haaland mm-hmm. play for Salzburg uh, and people are talking about 80 million or whatever it is there's a rush, as you say, to, to promote these guys because people are afraid of being left behind. just want to try and relate that to Wilf Sahar, if I could, Andy. Mm. There's someone who went to Manchester United too early. Mm. By his own admission, he's, he's in these digs in, in South, uh, South, uh, sorry, Stockport. He's completely alienated and therefore fails. Now there's talk about him going back there. Is that realistic talk? Uh, in this day and age, it is realistic, yeah. And I've looked at that deal and thought, you really want to get your, you know, you run the risk of getting your fingers burnt again. It's a, you know, a lot of it's about the character, you know, you step away from the footballer, the character of the man. You know, I go back to Chelsea, but Andreas Christensen, who went to Germany for two or three years and has talked, I mean, he was very, very young when he went there and had to, he was telling us how he used to have to live in a, an apartment you know, on his own and, and find his feet. Just tell, tell us about washing his underwear, you know, and hanging it out and, and, and learning to, you know, those things, you know, like university that kids go to, you know, when you go and move away, you, you find your feet as an adult. Um, and if you're ready for that, great. Wilf obviously wasn't, but he feels he is now. I find what I don't like is I don't like seeing all the agitating that's going on. Having been there once, it's not worked out, come back, maybe a little bit more foot on the ball, and let's see if it happens rather than, you know, I keep seeing stories. And I know I'm sort of biting the hand that feeds me, 
But the you know from a, a different, slightly different perspective, to see a player like that, you know, actively promoting themselves to get out again, uh, and the chairman having to come out and talk about it and say we will give him a transfer, I just think it's a little bit ungracious in a way. Mm. Maybe maybe a London club is better for him. I, you know, I would have thought until Pulisic, you know, and Hudson and Doyle came along, maybe Chelsea, but whether or not he could still fit in at Chelsea, I don't know, on a different side or up front, I don't know, but maybe a London club. Mm. Not a lot of grace in football these days, as, you, <laughs> as we all know. There's the P45 derby at the Emirates at the weekend. Yeah. Uh, both Arsenal and Southampton say they're going to stand by their man. Yeah. Will they? Yeah, I don't know. I mean... There's uh, an awful lot of what Arsenal would call noise around Unai Emery. I think maybe the one saving grace for him is that there isn't an obvious candidate to replace him. Realistically, I don't think anything changes irrespective of who wins that game because Arsenal seemed dead set on, on deferring this decision to the end of the season. For Southampton, um, I don't think the, the problem is really with Ralph Hasenudel. I, I think Southampton uh, have carried recruiting issues for maybe three or four years now. Um, the same issues that Les Reed ultimately paid for with his job. I think I remember looking back at them at the beginning of the season and thinking, not enough has been done. So because of the changeover in managers over the last couple of years, um, they went from Puel to Pellegrini, uh, to Pellegrino, sorry, uh, to Mark Hughes and then to Hasnagel. You have this churn in the squad where it has no proper shape. It has its assets and, and attributes aren't balanced properly. And so what they really need is, is, is to address that first. Changing the coach just accentuates that issue. And I think he is a good coach. Um, it's hard to make that argument when a team has lost 9-0 at home in the same season. But who are you going to go and get at this moment? Who, who is, who is your, your ticket out of this situation? It's not just by changing one employee. It's by addressing the failure that's existed for half a decade now. That's, that's your approach. So, no, losing at Arsenal is not, is not a uh, is justification for him, him losing his job, no. There's the Sean Dyche derby at Watford <laughs> as well this weekend. You know, if I was a, an Everton, I would have bitten his hand off to get, get him mm. in there. Mm. Um, are we at a point now where Sean Dyche deserves to be mentioned for an Arsenal job? I think he's a victim of the viewpoint on British managers. I mean, Frank Lampard's doing something to, to shatter that. So maybe, you know, a, a little while down the line, long-term attitudes will change. Always been a huge fan of Sean Dyche. For the honesty you get from him in, in the post-match and pre-match exactly. press conferences, the, the intelligence that goes, because Burnley aren't a big club and they don't get a lot of explo ex explosion, exposure, his intelligence doesn't come across well either. I think... Yeah, I think he's, he's, he's long overdue. And when you look at the club that he was at Watford, and you look at the way they run things. I was there the other week when they lost to Chelsea and the fans are singing, you don't know what you're doing. I think two months into his job, you know, as Seb says, changing the manager all the time, it just, it doesn't work, but it's the only thing they can change. Sean Dyche, you know, has, has been sacked. He's been, you know, he's moved on, he's moved around, but... There's a definite feeling that there is something in there. Well, he's been at Burnley for seven years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's, he's been around, he's travelled around. He deserves, you know, he's like, he's, otherwise he's going to end up like Eddie Howe. And everybody talks about Eddie Howe, and Eddie Howe's been you know, at one club a long time. I think if we don't do something soon, he'll be pigeonholed. I think, uh, I, I, just really, I just really, really rate him and really admire what he does. With Kike Sanchez-Flores 
at Watford. He's a very good defensive coach. You can mm. see that they've actually tightened up. Is that going to be enough? Uh, at the moment, no, um, because it's been skewed too far the other way. Javier Gracia's football could be a little bit suicidal at times and numbers of, of players they committed forward was dangerous and they you know, got picked off. I feel like just banking players behind the ball is... It almost, it, it, it almost defeats what uh, Watford have tried to create. They've got some really good attacking players. They've missed Troy Deeney terribly. Uh, I'm a little bit unsure about how good Andre Gray is as a goal scorer. Um, but if you look at the sort of the bank of players behind them, by 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 allowing um, by going to almost a back five and you know a four in front of that, you're taking away at least half of your team's potential. Um, so there does need to le- be a little bit of compensation here, because I spoke to some some Watford fans um, when he came back, and you know while they vaguely associated him with a good first season back in the Premier League, the issue was this kind of football by binary code. You know, either you win one nil or you don't. It's that kind of that kind of approach. Like Andy, I found some of those chants a bit ridiculous so soon into his, his tenure. But something does need to change that because you're not going to get out of this situation just by you know picking up the occasional win against Norwich and you know losing bravely against the Chelsea after a you know a, a you know a resistance effort essentially for 80 minutes. There was a feeling that Watford had changed. I, I remember writing this article and I, I, I'm humiliated by it a year later. I still get people... Join the club. Or... Yeah, but still, people still send <laughs> it to me on social media. Wait a year. Yeah, it's I, a week for me. But it, it, and <laughs> you think, like, I liked what they were doing with Grassi. I just think that he mm. wasn't the right person ultimately to be doing it mm. with. Mm. Um, but it seems like it's a little bit like, you know, sending the fire brigade to, to get a cat out of a tree. Like, it's, it's too much. You needed to modify tactically what they were doing, rather than say, "Right, well, we're going to we, 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 we're going to circle the wagons and just shut down the, the defense entirely." It, I, I don't. Um, it's too much. Well, they just reverted to type with Grazia, didn't they? You know, it was it's, and it's all easy to pull the trigger on the manager, isn't it? Yeah. As we go back it's to Southampton easy. as well, it's yeah. easy to pull the trigger yeah. on a manager. Well, I get the impression that I was going to say, if Norwich goes down, sadly, it could even be a win at this moment. They'll stick with Daniel Farker because mm. of the nature of the club and, and the bigger picture that Stuart Webber, the sporting director, uh, has. Am I right in being pessimistic about their chances of survival? Oh, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They're just, you, you can almost see the, the confidence, the, the energy draining out of them when you watch them. We, we, they look the Watford like result they, was a bad one, wasn't oh. it? Mm. And they look like a team that's just succumbing, really. You know, we. You know, we had the the Timu Puki start to the season. Uh, everybody was raving about him, but he seems to have been a bit found out. Um, scored twice for Finland. Yeah, it? scored twice for Finland. You know, but how many players do we know? I mean, Ronaldo stormed out of Juventus, didn't he, last week? And then he, he, was, he did wonders for Portugal. Sometimes they feel more comfortable with their, you know, in international football, they get played, you know, the, the right way. Um, yeah, they, it's a real shame because it's a, you know, it's, it's a good place to go, Norwich. It's a good, you know, good setup, but they just seem to be slowly ebbing away, don't they? They seem. I mean, uh, before that game against Watford, Stuart Webber came on TV and uh, he was pretty blunt about what their approach would be in January. He was very clear: they're not going to spend a lot of money to get themselves out of trouble. They have built into their business model the possibility that they may well go down, and whilst not accepting that cheerfully, they're fine with it. And that kind of tells you there's going to be no um, there's going to be no lunge in January. There's no going to, there's not going to be a, a big spike in performance as a result of uh, a panic. So you think from 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 a business perspective that's that's very very sensible. But obviously from a footballing approach that's um, doesn't doesn't flow particularly well. Mm. 
just want to end by looking at the women's football weekend. Hugely successful in terms of numbers. Record 38,000 crowd at Spurs, 23,500 at Anfield. Uh, I think it was nearly 75,000 people watching those games overall. What are the limits of the realistic ambitions of, for women's football in this country, do you think? What's great about that is I don't know. I don't have an answer for that because yeah. it keeps surprising me. Like yesterday, 38,000 fans inside Tottenham Stadium. Um, that would have sold out old White Hot Lane. My, uh, wife, uh, my future wife's family, um, three of her cousins took all their kids there. Lovely picture of them outside the stadium, like their replica shirts, and it's about 12 of them going. It's a great day. Women's football in this country just has this benevolent energy to it, which means that the sky's kind of the limit. And it's great, the engagement and the sort of the amount of games and the coverage and the, the atmosphere around it. Similar to the World Cup in the summer, everyone that I've spoken to who went there either out, went out to cover, the, cover the, the tournament or went out as a fan, came back with nothing but good things to say. And it's just, it's exciting to see it. Like, it, Premier League's been around for so long, English football, men's football, like, it, nothing really changes in terms of its shape and the way you feel about it. Women's football is that new thing, and it's just, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Not knowing the answer to the question is really, is really nice, actually. Yeah, but in terms of actually the, the viewing experience, you know, very good technically. The atmosphere is great. What's not to like about it, Andy? I think what, what, it, what one big factor is the continuing interest of the, the men's side of the big clubs, because at the moment they are subsidising it, because they are giving away a lot of tickets for fans to go to. And I've sat and thought about this and thought, well, shouldn't it be allowed to, shouldn't it have to grow naturally the way the, the men's game did? But the men's game grew when there was nothing else to compete with. It was football that was growing. If you left women's football to its own devices, the men's game is so monstrous, it wouldn't stand a chance. And I think it's really good that the, the big clubs, you know, mainly through a lot of public pressure, are putting a lot of money into it to grow it. And as long as they keep that attitude until it can stand on its own two feet, then I think the sky's the limit. I was, like, I was impressed with um, the atmosphere, the, the full seats and, and some of the football that I saw from that Arsenal Spurs game yesterday. Well, the product is great. Build the right platform, and by that I mean more women's games at big venues, and they will come. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.